Good morning to my Victor City family. We are so excited to join back together one more week in the Word of God. So excited that you decided to join back with us in Victor City Live this week. I'm especially excited about the Word today as we are still working through Matthew. Um, as you know, we have been working through and discussing all of these things that Jesus has spoken about as Jesus is really concentrating on the law and he's actually going back through the law and exposing all of the misinterpretations that people have had, that the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders had concerning the law. And instead of reestablishing the law or coming up with new laws, he just says what the law was intended to mean when it was originally written. You saw um, a few weeks ago we did that through anger, and last week we did that through lust. Well, Today, if you think those last two sermons regarding that have been difficult, I think this one is going to be the one that garners the most attention and takes the most pause for some people because it is dealing with such a controversial topic. You've already seen the title. It is Still God, Marriage and Divorce. What we want to do today is, again, not say anything new, not even be controversial, but point people back to the truth of Scripture, look at the words of Jesus and exact what he said, what he meant, and hopefully come to realize that we have no choice but to accept what Scripture says about everything, even the things that make us uncomfortable. So we're going to look at two passages today, um, both spoken about Jesus on the topic of marriage and divorce. And we're going to see just what that means in reality and relationship to our lives. So I'm just excited to jump back into the word this week. Now, the two verse text that is featured in this sermon today is undoubtedly not only one of the most controversial passages, but it is also one of the most uncomfortable passages that's represented in the Bible. Now, it's not just because Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, but I think it is because of what he is saying here regarding marriage and divorce. In every one of these cases, right, we have seen Jesus bring clarification to the misinterpretation of the law that people had. We saw it with that anger. We saw it with that lust. And in every one of these cases, we all probably thought, eh, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with that, but I realize that what Jesus is saying is true. I don't love it, but I have to accept it. Plus, I know that my life will be better because I have a clearer understanding of this. Now, I don't think that we have occurred a topic that Jesus spoke on multiple times, was consistent in what he said, and yet people still feel that the understanding of the topic is not clear. Or they just downright disagree with what Jesus said. The reason this is is because they felt that Jesus never left no wiggle room, right? They feel like when Jesus talked about marriage, when Jesus talked about divorce, he talks about it in very strict parameters. He's very black and white about the topic. And I've noticed that we are a world that loves to live in the gray area. We don't like absolutes. But here we're going to see that Jesus speaks firmly and absolutely about the topic of marriage and divorce. And because everything in the Bible is authoritative, it is from 
God, we must accept it as truth. Now, what is interesting is that every time he talked about this topic, Jesus never changed his tone. His stance was consistent. It remained the same. And if I could say in the most concise terms possible, in one good cogent sentence, it would be this. Jesus believes that marriage is serious to God and it better be serious to you. That is the whole purpose of everything Jesus says regarding marriage or divorce. So let's jump um, to two passages today. One looking at our Matthew 5 text, but then we're going to jump to Matthew 19. Matthew 5 and 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Matthew 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, one more time for the word of God. Lord, there are always difficult truths that we will find in the word. But if we believe that the Bible is in error, that the Bible um, is all source of truth, God, then we accept it whether we like it or not. And we accept it, and even if we don't like it, because we love you. God, I pray that you open up our eyes and our spiritual ears, give us clarity and understanding regarding this topic, but also give us grace um, to understand um, the various positions people will be in life and have mercy, even in how we discuss this today. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So here we have two significant passages whereby Jesus deals with the topic of divorce and he begins the passage with the same way that we have seen him begin these other passages by saying, you have heard this, but this is what I say. And so this time, perhaps the most controversial of all these cases, he says, you have heard that whoever divorces his wife must present her with a certificate of divorce. But I say that if you divorce your wife for any other reason other than sexual immorality, then you make her commit adultery and any other person that she would marry as well. 
This seems to us at best like a strange text, right? Jesus is clearly addressing something. And we need a ton of context to understand what Jesus is saying here and what Jesus is not saying here. This is what Jesus is talking about. He is talking about how serious marriage should be taken. He is talking about how serious marriage is. He is not saying, nor is he suggesting that women should stay in abusive marriages if no sexual immorality occurs. He is not referring to that at all. I have to make that clear. The reason I have to make that clear is because what people tend to do, because they do not understand how to read and interpret truth, they will read one statement of truth and automatically exclude other statements of truth that this one has nothing to do with. This is only talking about a man trying to send his wife away in this context. We have to understand that. In fact, what we are going to see is that when Jesus says this, he is actually saying this to protect the rights of the women who were in their marriages because they had no say so in what happened within their society as far as what happened regarding divorce. Jesus explains it briefly in, Ma in the Matthew 5 text, but I think he best explains it here for us in our Matthew 19 text. I think he gives us more context here. In the 19 text, it says that the Pharisees who wanted to put Jesus to the test, can a man, that is very important here, can a man divorce for any reason is it lawful? That's the question. Now, what does Jesus do? He does what he typically does. Rather than just simply answer the question, Jesus exacts. He gives us the exact parameters of what God intended for marriage to be from the beginning, which says one flesh. That is what he's doing. We addressed this last week. The joining of the flesh is the symbolism of the consummation of the marriage by which the two people who were two individuals now become one flesh. They become one person. And that is a covenant that they share with each other that they make before God. That is the importance of marriage. When Jesus says what God has joined together, he is saying that God never, God never intended on an earthly way for marriage to end other than death. That is exactly what Jesus is saying. So if that's the case, why does it end? Why do marriages end? That's what they're asking Jesus, right? But they weren't actually looking for an answer here. They wanted to hear Jesus challenge the authority of Moses. That's why they're asking a the question. 
Because if they can get Jesus to challenge the authority of Moses, then they can vilify him and make him an opponent and an enemy to not just the small sect of the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but all of the Jewish nation who would have known that Moses was the lawgiver. But he doesn't. He doesn't do that. He explains why Moses offered a certificate of divorce in the first place. Now, when looking here, what is his reasoning? He says this, because of your hardness of heart, this certificate merely became transactional. The religious leaders were supposed to make sure that divorce had cause. What was the cause supposed to be? It was supposed to be sexual immorality. They had to make sure when a man in the Old Testament came to ask for a divorce and get a certificate of divorce, they would ask that man or they were supposed to ask him, did your wife commit some sexually immoral act? But over the course of time, that is not what they did. They did not check. And so what Moses does to supplant that is to provide a certificate of divorce so that a man can put his wife away. Now, the reason that happens is because without that certificate, a man was divorcing his wife on any grounds. Jesus is actually saying here that Moses gave the certificate of divorce not to enable men to just divorce for whatever reason. He gave the certificate of divorce to protect the wives when husbands wanted to put them away from any, any reason. Now, how is this protecting them? Well, without that, Moses knew how some of these women would have been treated and abused once the man decided he no longer wanted to be in a marriage with them. And if they look at the law and see there is no out for them, then they would have done anything to that woman to get out. So he offers this certificate of divorce as a means for a man to get out of the marriage to protect the woman from being harmed. But Jesus is clear. He doesn't let Moses off the hook either. He says that this is not how it was from the beginning. This was not the intention. So what does he do? He does what he's done for every one of these subjects regarding the law. You have a standard of this subject, right? Based on your own misinterpretation, just like you did with anger, just like you did with lust, it's almost for us like a commentary on our own culture, right? Thousands of years before this culture ever existed, Jesus is offering a commentary on our culture. Marriage for them and now for us is seen not as a covenant before God. It's seen more of a, of a social contract. And it is performed before our family. It is performed before our friends. And we come in, husband and wife, having separate terms that rather than God has said regarding it, that, and this is the standard. If I'm unhappy, I deserve to be happy. That's ultimately what it comes down to. 
You have two individuals who are supposed to come together and be one, whereby one cannot have happiness where the other one has unhappiness. They have to have either happiness or unhappiness together because the two have become one. But now because it's just a social contract and the man comes with his set of terms and the woman comes with her set of terms and they're disregarding what God has said marriage should be, then what happens is at the top of all those terms is I deserve to be happy. But that, pre that presents two problems for us, right? We need to work through this. There are two issues with this line of thinking, thinking that I deserve to be happy. Because people are so convinced that they deserve happiness, they will either enter or exit a marriage for the sake of happiness. That means that if you enter the marriage just for the sake of happiness, that the marriage is built on sand, right? It has no foundation. It has no footing. It is unstable ground. Therefore, there is no scrutiny when a man or a woman is entering the marriage and there is none when they're leaving. There is little discernment when they're choosing a spouse. There is little scrutinizing of that person's personality, whether that person really has a relationship with God. There is no discernment. And that's really because choosing a spouse and being in a marriage has had a lessened value in our eyes. Therefore, people treat it with lesser value. I've personally approached multiple couples on multiple occasions and, and knew that they were intending to get married and said, hey, do you want marriage counseling? Of course, because I'm standing right there. They say, yes, we love for you to do it. And then months and months and months go on without me hearing back from those people. And eventually I learned, oh, they've gotten married with no marriage counseling. And more often than not, it is not uncommon that within a matter of months, these people have issues with one another. Now, why are people so averse to getting some sort of marriage counseling? Because they so highly value the marriage that they're afraid that they're going to go to marriage counseling and realize that they probably shouldn't be getting married to one another. Well, duh. That's the whole purpose of the marriage counseling. It is to take two people who are meant to be together and reaffirm them in that and strengthen that union and establish that before God. But it's also to take two people who God has not placed together and allow them to see maybe we shouldn't be getting married to one another. Marriage has become, though, just another commodity where we buy and sell all the things that we think we should have in the marriage. So Jesus gives parameters for marriage and divorce. And I love it. Jesus says that there is only one valid reason by which the man should divorce his wife. And that reason, according to Jesus, you read it, is sexual immorality. And we understand this term to include all sexual sin. Now, what he does here is present 
an exception clause, but let me pause for the cause right here to say something. I have seen many a case, whether it's the man who is emotionally withdrawn himself from the marriage or the woman who is emotionally withdrawn herself from the marriage. They, before any other spouses had done any sexual act against them, they had emotionally withdrawn themselves from that spouse. And then because of that emotional withdrawal, that spouse goes and has some um, illicit sexual relationship with somebody outside of their marriage. And then they say, ah, now I have grounds for divorce. But you emotionally divorced yourself from that person while you were still married to them. You are not off the hook. When God is talking about this, he is saying for a spouse who has remained faithful in their emotional commitment, in their spiritual commitment, in their physical commitment to their spouse. If the other spouse commits sexual immorality, then there is an out. But it's not saying that you have to be divorced. It's an exception clause. This is the exception to the rule. That other than this, you could get a divorce if you so decided. But we're going to see later why the picture of what Jesus has done for us can be found in marriages, even in marriages where a spouse has been unfaithful. We're going to see that in just a second. But I want to be clear here and, and understand this before we go forward. Now, again, this is specific. What Jesus is saying about sexual morality, he is saying this specific to a type of person, to a group of people. He is not addressing women who need to divorce because in this time, only men could initiate and obtain a certificate of divorce. And with that, he says, if any of these men divorce and remarry for any other reason, they become adulterers. Now, we know broadly this can be applied to everyone. But in this context, he's speaking to Jewish men who had tried to misinterpret this law so they could set aside their wives for whatever reason. But in the context of our culture, and Paul addresses this later as well, if any person, whether you are a man or a woman, who tries to set their husband or wife aside, there is only one just cause for it. And it's sexual immorality. Listen, I know we have people who are watching and who have been divorced. We have people within our church who have been divorced. Some people were divorced before they were Christians. Some people were divorced while they were Christians and didn't have understanding. The beautiful thing about God is that in our salvation, he gives us grace to our sins, past, present and future. If you are a Christian, if you have been washed in the blood, if you are married to somebody whom you got married to through some illicit relationship, but have now come in the faith, you're a believer. That sin has been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is not an unforgivable sin. And I don't want anybody to feel like they are condemned because of something that may have happened either when they weren't a Christian or they were spiritually immature or when they weren't as developed. And now they know more. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. He forgives us of the sins we knew about, know about and didn't know about. That's what I love about the gospel. But he says here, I 
I know that the sin of divorce seems too great for you. I know that the parameters seem too strong for you, but there is a reason. But I like what happens next when he says that. It's not the Pharisees who comment, right? We look at the text. It's not the Pharisees who are like, whoa, Jesus, that's a little too strong. Those, param those parameters are a little too strict. I don't think we can meet that. It's not the Pharisees. It's his own disciples. It is his own disciples who say, well, according to what you just said, it sounds like it's better for us not to marry. Exactly. This is how it has been from the beginning. If people knew the binding nature of marriage, they would not just marry anybody. They wouldn't just enter marriage so easily, so haphazardly. They would scrutinize it. They would convict it. They will look at it. They will watch it. They will examine it. They will look in the word of God and see if what they're doing is for God or for themselves. If they knew how binding marriage was, they would not just enter it so easily. And they certainly wouldn't exit it easily at all. This is why when you look in the Old Testament, there's a there's a text about an older child in the law. If that older child is rebellious and cannot be tamed by his parents, his parents are commanded to bring that child before the judges and the elders and they are to stone that child. Now, why is that law given? Is that law given just so they can stone bad older children? No. Is given so that if you are a parent and you know the penalty of not raising your child in the admonition of the Lord and raising that child to obey, you know there will be a strict punishment for having not properly raised that child. So what did it implore the parents to do? Discipline the children because they knew of the other result. That's why that law was given. Why does Jesus give us such strict parameters regarding marriage and divorce? Because you ain't supposed to get out. You are bound to your spouse. You have been woven and knitted together with them in a covenant before God. And breaking that covenant, breaking covenants in the Old Testament meant death. That is what he wants us to understand. And same, the same case as it is with every other thing that we learn about the truth of God, that he has this incredibly high standard that we can't meet without him, same is the case with marriage. Now, you may think that I'm just talking and there are not people who really view marriage this way, but I would like to share with you a quick, very personal story about a couple that is now married that... I know about there is a couple and there was the woman who had been married before, right? The woman had been married before she had committed adultery against her husband. She had sinned against her husband while she was married. Now he did not want to get divorced, but eventually they do get divorced. She had committed adultery. When she got out of that marriage, according to the text, she was not permitted to remarry. She could remarry her spouse. 
she is not permitted to remarry. That is not according to Brandon. That's not the gospel of Brandon. That is what Jesus has said. The man that she wanted to marry was not only a pastor, but he had also been married. In his time being married, he had also had children with a woman who was not his spouse. He was divorced. This is the person that she was going to marry. Now, I went to this woman because she's a friend. And I went to her personally because I had other family members and other friends who were Christians who were not saying anything. And I said, listen, this is what the truth of the Bible says. That if you are so concerned about your happiness that you would be so willing to disregard the law of God. I don't know how you can really be a believer. Now, I didn't say that she wasn't. But if a person would choose happiness, right, in, in, in this way, that they would choose happiness over the truth of God, I don't know how you would ever choose the truth of God over happiness. And I told her, based on this text, that you are not to remarry anybody else, especially considering the circumstances. And according to this, there is no grace for that marriage. Now, surely they could have come to the revelation of truth while they are and they are married to one another. And they could have come to the revelation of truth and realized that they were wrong and repented before God. And that changes everything. Right. Because that's the beauty of the gospel. But if not. The Bible says that she has made an adulterer out of him who was an adulterer anyway. And he has made an adulteress out of her who was an adulteress anyway. That is what the Bible says. We don't have the luxury, people, of choosing happiness over righteousness. Because if we will disregard even the smallest iota of the law, then we will always choose what we want over what God requires. So Jesus says that there are some who are physically unable to marry. He was talking about eunuchs and people who have been castrated before. He said these are people who physically cannot be married. He said, and those are the ones who cannot receive this teaching. But he says, those who can should. And there are only two types of people. Paul speaks about this. There are people who have been gifted to be married. There are people who are gifted to be single. There's no in between. And I will tell you this. The people who are gifted to be married far outnumber the people who have been gifted to be single. And that gift to be single is also a full devotion to the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ. That is why they are single. So even when Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7, as we're about to go, we're not going to read this verse, but he speaks in a way. He says, I wish that everyone could get along alone as I have done. Paul was a Pharisee at one point. He was a rabbi. He was probably married and his wife more than likely died. But he also, knowing that he was a Pharisee, could have divorced her. And he says, I wish that everybody could get along and be single like I am. 
He says, this is not the case. So I want to look at the beautiful picture that God paints of what marriage should look like. And we're going to close. 1 Corinthians 7 and 10. This is what Paul says. To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I, I say, I, not the Lord. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, that means be married, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So obviously you see there's a change in the culture here in, the Rome, in Rome and in Corinth where women can divorce their spouses. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, this is the beautiful picture of what marriage should be, right? Paul does not give people an innocent out here if they are converted during their marriage. But he says that if the spouse remains unconverted through your life and through your words, through your testimony, let that sanctify, convert the unbelieving spouse to believe. And that's the most beautiful thing that can happen. And I know so many testimonies by which either the husband was converted or the wife was converted. And it is the, the fearlessness of that spouse to share and live out the gospel before the unbelieving spouse. And they are converted because of what they see from their spouse. That is the most beautiful thing that can happen in this situation. He says that that spouse should leave the unbelieving spouse into belief. They should share the gospel and be the example. He does imply, though, that the most common case is that it will eventually lead to the salvation of the spouse or they will just get tired of it and leave. And he says, if this is the case, if they do leave, you converted spouse who did not choose to leave are free. But they are not. They are still enslaved. They are still in covenant. They are still bound to you. That is what he's saying here. He says that the unbelieving spouse is free from the union, but not the unbelieving spouse. In the marriage, the picture of Christ's work should saturate the husband and the wife. What are the qualities that should be found in every marriage? There should be in every house, between every husband and wife, grace, because we got grace from Jesus. There should be love, because the ultimate display of love was to be self-sacrificing. There should be mercy. In the times where you can render a harsh word or judgment, 
You don't, and you show mercy. There should be patience. There should be long-suffering. There should be self-control. There should be kindness. There should be gentleness. There should be goodness. And there should be meekness. If these qualities, which these are the attributes of the Spirit, the non-attributes of the fruit of the Spirit, then I guarantee you this, if this were present in every marriage, there would be no divorce. There would be no divorce. If we could all look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians when he talks about love that isn't proud, love that doesn't boast, love that does not count the record of wrongdoing. If we could understand that he was laying out for us the love that has been given to us from Jesus and the love that we should give to our spouses, then Jesus would never have had to talk about divorce. If the husband was gentle and caring for his wife as the weaker vessel, not weak in who she is, but the one who is going to be more timid, more emotional. If he would handle her, handle her like he would handle a bouquet of flowers and take care of her and nurture her and love on her and be tender and gentle and meek. And if the woman would emotionally live with her spouse and engage with him and be available for him, then there would be none of these issues. The beautiful thing about marriage as we close is that God, through the gospel, has given us a picture. And that is why when Jesus says that we are his bride and that he is married to us, is because he demonstrated for us the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate picture of love, which should trickle down to us in our marriages so we would never even have to talk about divorce. That's an amazing, amazing Savior. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you um, for the word today, God. Um, we are dealing with some very weighty topics, God, some very difficult things to discuss and talk about. And God, we just need grace in how we handle this. We just need grace in how we approach this. And we need mercy, God. We know that there are people who are watching who are going to fall in different areas, God. And I pray that this, if there are people here who have been converted and maybe they are divorced and maybe they did commit adultery, whatever the case, that they will see that there is grace and mercy provided for them if they truly repent and believe. And that the standard that was held against them, God, has been cast into the sea of forgetfulness. But God, if there are people who are watching who may be in the middle of this and are unrepentant about where they are, that you will lead them to truth, lead them to repentance so that the union that they are in can have grace. And God, more than anything, I pray that you will give us a love and a desire to not just know the truth, but to act according to the truth and not to our own happiness and our own desires. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.